Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. And we'll be looking at verses 36 to 46. Matthew 26 verses 36 to 46. An experienced minister of the gospel was once asked about questioning candidates for ministry. This man had served in many ordination councils throughout his life. He said that if he ever sensed the candidate was proud and overconfident, he would ask question, he would question the man about his prayer life because he said that was a short way to understand his humility. Perhaps there is no area in which we fail in our spiritual obligations more often than in our prayer lives. And yet, if you think about it, we really don't have a good excuse for this failure. We've been taught how to pray in the scriptures, and our Lord has given us a model prayer. We have heard countless encouragements about the importance of prayer. We have promises and scripture incentives given to us to pray. We own prayer books. I suspect you have some at home. And even we send out Grace Weekly email every week at Grace Church where, to the members of Grace Church where a good portion is allocated to pray for the needs of our body and even other ministries in this region. And yet, we fail to pray as we ought. This is perhaps one of the most embarrassing aspects of our Christian lives. And I suspect that some of you are intentionally seeking to improve your prayer life this new year. I commend you for that. I want you to know that struggling in prayer is not a modern problem, but something that Christians have always found it difficult. This morning, as we prepare a house to listen to, sermon, to the sermon, I want us to consider a passage that presents a vivid contrast. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we find our Lord agonizing in prayer while the disciples are fast asleep. So look with me as we begin in verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, 
the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going see my betrayer is at hand let us come to our lord in prayer as we look at this text <coughs> heavenly father we come to you recognizing that we are weak people often struggling to depend on you rely on you and walk in obedience and we ask that lord even as we meditate from this passage christ suffering christ agony even before the cross help us father to understand your love your holiness that allowed even jesus to die on the cross for our sake help us father to un- have an understanding that gives us father the ability to now live by faith walk in obedience pray without ceasing and be watchful in our lives in jesus name we pray amen getsemane means olive press it's the place of crushing where the olives are trodden down until the oil runs out and this is the place where we see our lord experiencing this kind of agony in this passage what we see here is a fascinating occasion it's a fearful occasion and indeed a unfathomable occasion the conflict with the pharisees that has been building over the previous chapters of matthew's record has reached its climax with christ exposing them to be frauds and spiritual hypocrites for who they are and we see that now they are determined to murder him just before these events christ ordained and established a new meal in the place of the passover this establishes the new covenant in his blood and a meal that has been eaten with a new family the gathering the christ as the head and the people gathered around him the disciples of jesus christ he knows at that after that time he knows that judas will betray him and even peter will deny him and this is the picture that we see here where jesus is suffering alone and there is no comfort from his friends and his disciples and a lot can be said from this text friends but for the sake of time i want to focus on two aspects from this text one we will look at the prayer of jesus or the prayers of jesus and secondly we see jesus's call to watch and pray for the disciples two simple truths we will summarize i will i'll summarize and look at these things the prayer of jesus so he says in verse 36 then jesus went with them to a place called gethsemane and he said to the, his disciples sit here while i go over there and pray and taking with him peter and two sons of zebedee he began to be sorrowful and troubled it is the night before our lord's crucifixion the disciples had just come out of the upper room where the lord gave perhaps the most memorable address in their lives what is known as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse in a short time jesus will be arrested and all the disciples will flee into the night then jesus will endure six unjust trials before corrupt leaders and the next morning at about 9 am he will be nailed to an old rugged cross but before the suffering at calvary there was the agony in the garden 
Jesus was born to die and he predicted his approaching death on several occasions to his disciples. But now in the garden, the reality of what was about to transpire came crashing down on his soul. The next day he would die alone in the darkness of Calvary and the bear, bear the sins of all mankind. And he has spoken to his disciple, disciples concerning these things and he knows his death is looming. The whole process of Christ's life, the whole purpose of Christ's life here on earth is now drawing to an end. He's at this point has the particular sight of his suffering. He has at this point perhaps the particular understanding what it means to wrestle with Satan. He refers to this as being his hour. The hour of the power of darkness is the time when Satan will assault him. And there is something of that in what he is now beginning to go through. And in another sense, there is also a sense of sin as the transgression and the iniquity that belongs to us is being laid upon him, Jesus Christ. So as he walks into the garden with them, verse 37 tells us that he begins to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Something shifts in our Lord's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. There seems to be a sudden, even a rapid rush of sorrow into his soul. No one here understands what Christ is actually going through. Whatever pain or sorrow we have endured, because this is nowhere close to what Christ is enduring right now. This is an exceeding, exceeding sorrow of the soul, even to the point of death. Now we may have been racked with pain and racked with grief in many occasions of our lives, but none of, have, none of us has experienced this overwhelming, this killing sorrow. He says to his disciples, stay here and watch with me. He's looking for comfort in his experience of his suffering in this way. My friends, even if you get this far, it does us good to remember that even as we wonder at the depths of Christ's suffering, there is a comfort for us here. While it is true that no one here has been so racked up in grief and pain as Christ was, it is true that, much we, uh, that our pain... And whatever pain that we are going through, Christ has been there. He understands that. When we talk about the sympathy of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is experiences like this that remind us. Christ has suffered what, can, what we cannot begin to understand properly in our own experience. So we see here Jesus praying three times. This is intended in part to communicate to us the depth of the struggle our Lord Jesus goes through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then there is a degree of triumph as he comes out on the other side of his first aspect of this experience. There is an element of progression here. We will look at this as we move forward. What you have here is a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, wrestling with his Father in faith, for strength in the task of salvation that has been set ahead of him. 
So we see in verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Verse 22, we see the same thing. My father. Verse 44, he prayed the third time and it says, saying the exact same words. My father. There is a deep distress in Jesus' voice, but there is also a delight in God here. Despite the transaction of salvation, the events that are coming to pass and this overwhelming sorrow in his soul, his relationship with his father is fundamentally unshaken. He can still refer to him as my father. Even as he refers, even he, as he refers on the cross as my God, we see here, even in the anguish, the words of confidence in his father. The words of faith that this is his God and his father that never falters even as his soul is being made an offering for sin. Matthew Henry puts it beautifully. He says, thick as the cloud was, he could see God as a father through it. Whatever cloud encompassed his soul with sorrow, even to the point which robbed his, him of life itself, it was as thick as a cloud. But Jesus could see God as his father through it. Friends, what a sweet reminder to God's people. Thick as the cloud may be, brothers and sisters, look for your father through it. See him, be assured as Christ was, that even in the deepest of the waters, when the billows seem to be going over your soul, your overwhelming sadness, that you have a God in heaven, that you have a father who loves you, cares for you, who knows your fair frame, and who remembers that you are dust. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are going through agony, not to the extent of Jesus, but to some extent, remember, even in the midst of that, we have Jesus, we have God as our Father, who shepherds us and who guides us. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart and pain and sorrow shall depart. So Jesus says, my father, out of the depths of his sorrow, verse 39, my father, if it, is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 22 again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. The horror that Jesus is going to, is imagining and thinking about right now, here is this cup. Now that there are various ways in which it has been approached, but I think it is talking about the divine wrath of God. The holy anger of a just God against sin. Now, my friends, if you want to understand what drinking the cup of God's wrath means, 
a vessel full to brim with God's wrath. It represents the full and holy wrath of God against sin. His outrage is not corrupted, but it is pure and holy. And Jesus is experiencing the taste of the cup of God's wrath, his perfect and holy hatred for sin. Then think back to the passage we read of God's judgment upon Israel from Psalm, 80, Psalm 88. And even if you want to know what it means to drink the cup of God's wrath, think of all the declarations of the prophets as they plead with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and warn them of what God will pour out upon the unrepentant sinners. Now Christ can, and in a sense in which he begins to taste this cup, this cup of God's wrath against sin. First you need to, but, but first we need to understand and remember that Christ is not a sinner here. He has never sinned and is worth point, pointing out that he is not sinning now. Some people suggest that this is Christ and he has lost his faith. He is no longer sure whether he wants to go through with these things. I don't see that for one moment here. But this is Christ now who is being made sin. That's the biblical language we need to think about right now. It's the language of imputation, of counting, belonging to one to another, of a transfer from one account to another. The sin of Christ's people is now being imputed and transferred across in its entirety from the people to Christ. The transaction is pictured on the Day of Atonement in the Jewish system of sacrifice. When a priest places a hand on a goat's head, there was a symbolic transfer of the nation's guilt on the goat, on the head of that sacrifice. But there was nothing symbolic here. The actual sin is really being transferred to the head of a real savior. And remember who he is. This is the son of God in flesh. This is the sinless lamb of God. This is the only man who ever lived, who enjoyed a life of communion with God in heaven, unbroken by any sin in him. And such a sinless man is experiencing the weight of sin of mankind and the judgment of the father that follows. Friends, this is the agony of his soul. The sinless one being made sin. This is his exceeding, killing sorrow. And when he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will. Friends, it is real suffering that Jesus is going through. It has to be. Otherwise, there's no real atonement for sin. This is not play acting, friends. This is not a symbolic transfer. A holy God crushing the incarnate son properly and he righteously recoils from that prospect. Psalm 88 verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Jesus longs that this cup would pass by, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, he says. It seems like he is resisting the divine will of God, but he came to fulfill his father's purposes joyfully, right? To do the will of the father. 
But as he begins to experience what that involves, he is simultaneously recoiling from the fact that he has to bear the weight of sin and at the same time willing to do the will of the Father. So he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, O my Father. And there is this subtle shift in verse 42. If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, let your will be done. Do you see how he moved from if it is possible to if it is not possible? We see Jesus in his humanity coming to terms with his inevitable suffering and death. Friends, this is what Jesus endured. The wrath of God, the curse of death on the cross, the actual separation from the Father in his human nature so that he can rightly represent us for you and for me. He felt the weight of our sin. He feels the weight of the pain of judgment. Who can conceive the agonies of this judgment, friends? The only one and the true Son of God. This should give us, friends, the appreciation for the salvation that we have received. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son, drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. Beloved, the next time when you are tempted to sin, remember the sinless Lamb of God who died on your behalf. Sister, when you are tempted to grumble and complain with your ongoing weaknesses and pain in your body, think of the anguish that he endured for our sake. Sisters, those who are married, remember the next time when you struggle to submit to your husband. Let this image of the suffering Savior give you the grace to submit to your husbands by faith. Brothers, when you are struggling to deny yourselves and love your wives, when you feel like you, you love to play your own video games or just sit on your couch and watch YouTube and scroll on your phone, think of the love that Jesus poured out on you to save you from the wrath to come. Grieve over your sins. Beloved, those who have made a habit of sinning, that Christ died on your behalf. This is not cheap grace, friends. It was costly. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, what a savior, friends. J.C. Ryle says, the weight that pressed down our, on our Lord's soul was not the fear of death and its pains. Thousands of, 
thousands have endured the most agonizing sufferings of body and died without a groan. And no doubt might our Lord. But the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world. It was the burden of our guilt credited to him. So friends, our Lord prayed when we were sorrowful. Then as our Lord prayed when he was sorrowful. Then as his children, isn't it appropriate for us to turn to him, call upon his name for grace and mercy when we are struggling? When we are in trials of various kinds, there is comfort for us in the bosom of our Father. So let us call upon his name, my Father, Abba Father, in the time of our need. Secondly, we will now look at Jesus' call to watch and pray to his disciples. So we saw that Jesus was in the midst of a crisis, an agony that would change the course of history forever. And he calls on the inner circle of his disciples, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. He calls on these three men to remain here and watch in verse 39. He had never made such a request to them before. Certainly the disciples must have picked up on the fact that Jesus was facing agony and seemed different than any other time that they had spoken to him. And what we see here is that while the Lord was praying, the disciples were sleeping. Our text emphasizes this contrast. We read of our Lord coming to them. Look with me at verse 40. He says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? He comes finds them asleep and says to Peter. And this seems to be a recurring problem here. We read about it again in verse 43. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And then in verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. This implies that they were still asleep, and these three incidents are set in contrast to the three agonizing prayers of our Lord. And so Matthew, the author of, the gospel, of this gospel, wants to highlight to his readers this vivid contrast between a suffering Savior who is praying and the disciples who are sleeping. What should we learn from this vivid and embarrassing contrast? The first one is that Christ's response to his sleepy disciples reveals his sadness over the failure of his people. We have these very haunting words at the, verse, at the end of verse 40. Jesus says to these men, So could you not watch with me one hour? I don't think that Jesus said this with an angry shout. I don't think he was infuriated with their failure. No, I think he was grieved. This was, this is, this was with sadness and disappointment. What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? He expected more from them. This was the supreme crisis of Jesus' life and they failed to support him and comfort him and he was left alone. I suspect those tender words that Jesus uttered that night haunted the disciples for years. 
What, could you not watch me for one hour? I'll pause momentarily here and consider why the disciples were sleepy this evening. First of all, it had been a long day. They were during the Passover season and you know how it is when you are away from home and out of your routines. You don't sleep well, you don't rest well. It was a long and draining day filled with momentous events here. We know that they celebrated the Last Supper or the First Communion sometime earlier. Then the Lord gave the upper room discourse, which is recorded in John chapter 14 through 17. This incident took place late at night. It was probably about midnight. And during those days, when people went to bed with the sundown and got up with the sun up, midnight would seem a lot later than it does to many people today. So they were tired, and this day was filled with emotional tension. Jesus had revealed some alarming things that night. He told to the twelve that one of them would betray him, which was disconcerting. And then he said to the one that, they, that he would deny him, and he predicted that all of them would spiritually stumble this night. But the most troubling thing to them was that he told them he was going away in the upper room and their hearts were troubled. This is why Luke in his account of this event says that they were sleeping for sorrow. They were discouraged, they were sad and they were distressed. They were emotionally drained and exhausted by all the monumental news that they heard this evening. But having said all that, I want you to know that none of those factors excuse their neglect. None of these factors make their sin less horrible than it truly was. I want to remind you of several factors that magnify the enormity of this spiritual blunder. First, I want you to consider those who failed this night. In verse 37, the Lord takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. This was the inner circle of the disciples. This was the leadership of the twelve. These men were the cream of the crop. They were the best of the 12 disciples. In verse 40, he comes to his disciples. It doesn't mean that he came to all 12 disciples. It, he came to these three disciples. That's how we understand in the context. Initially in verse 30, you'll notice his words are directed to Peter. But when it says, what could you not watch with me one hour? The word you is indicating a plurality there. In other words, he's addressing all three men here. He's saying that Peter, John, and James... My leaders, these men I poured my life into, could you not wait and watch with me for an hour? Just consider these men. Peter was, of course, the natural leader of the twelve. And we already know that this night, the Lord has revealed to him that, about what's going to happen. And Peter has not received that message well. In verse 33 of this same chapter, Peter says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall. He says, Lord, you know these other disciples. I can see how they would fall you, fail you tonight, but it's not going to happen to me. He was filled with pride, even though Jesus, throughout the years of his ministry with Peter and these other men, constantly taught them about the importance of humility. And that on the last night that he would have the master before his death, Peter, the leading disciple, fails him miserably. He's filled with pride and self-confidence. He's ready to take on the world. He thinks there's no way he could ever fall. And we have James and John. They also failed here. These three disciples had special privileges and training. 
they were the they were with the lord on the mount of transfiguration remember the other disciples were down at the base but these men got to that got to go up with jesus on that mountain and there they saw a radiant light as bright as the noonday sun shining out of jesus's divine being it's not that there was light shining on jesus no there was a light coming out of jesus even after the incredible experience they failed him horribly sometimes people think you know if i had some miraculous experiences it would build up my faith and i would follow the lord really really faithfully not true friends look at these disciples they had the most spectacular experiences that you could imagine and they failed miserably their status magnifies the enormity of their guilt so what spiritual privileges have been given to us let's think about it for a moment have you come from a christian heritage do you get to read your bible daily do you own a bible how many sermons have you heard in your lifetime you're part of a healthy church and you're understanding the true meaning of the gospel but do you still struggle with worldliness what answers to prayer have you seen the lord do in your lives respond to in your lives what miraculous things did god bring into your life and yet how much are we like these sleepy disciples perhaps you are tempted to say if i were there that night i would act differently sometimes in our pride we think like peter and his friends let us not be consumed by self reliance and pride my friends call upon to jesus to humble you as you see the pride acting in your life even now another fact that magnifies their failure is considering what he asked them to do he asked them to pray he didn't ask them to do something incredibly difficult is it no he didn't ask them to fight against the mob that was going to come and arrest him he asked them to pray but they failed him in one of the basic christian duties and of course the thing magnifies more than anything else is the person making that request it was the lord who said watch with me the one who had lived with them now for over 3 years asked them to stay up and pray with him this man who never failed them who always treated them with love this man was so patient with their blunders this man was always praying for them and it's not that they had just a great teacher they had a perfect example they had the greatest teacher who ever lived and the only man who perfectly lived out his lessons truth and yet they still failed in prayer now how many hours has the lord spent in prayer for these men if you look at the gospels you can see at many times jesus jesus praying in many circumstances and he's asking them to pray for an hour so this was the beginning of his death friends this is what is referred in john's gospel as his hour this was what all of his life was pointing toward this hour this night when he is offered up as a sacrifice and all of this would climax in the darkness of calvary in this hour 
great warfare was taking place. One preacher says that the cross was the convergence of three great forces. The wickedness of man, Christ's sovereignty, and the devil's attack. Satan was very involved that night. We read that he entered the heart of Judas Iscariot, and a few moments later, the devil would trip up, leading apostle Peter to deny him. Lord would say when the mob came to arrest him, he would say to Jesus, Judas, this is your hour and the power of darkness. These religious hypocrites and Roman soldiers were really the agents of Satan and his host of darkness. In Satan's mind, this was his hour, the long-awaited moment when the Son of God would be put to death. But in this fateful hour, the Son of God would be victorious as he would die and reign from the cross. And in this fateful hour, this hour that all of his life has been pointing toward, this is when the disciples had this colossal blunder when it mattered the most. Sometimes you can make inconsequential mistakes because nothing is riding on it. There's nothing significant about it. It's not a very important moment, but when you have a colossal blunder at the most important moment, how is it magnified? And that's how it was for these disciples. What an accurate and embarrassing portrait, portrait of Christ's followers. But then we also see Christ's response in the midst of it. His disciples reveal the greatness of his love for his people. He says in verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's missing here is not a brutal rebuke, friends. The Lord is not making excuses for their sin, but he is also sympathetic to their plight. We see here a beautiful truth. Jesus is sympathetic to the disciples who fail him and acknowledges that they were willing to pray for him for an hour. The word flesh here is used in several different ways, and scripture often uses this term to describe our sinful nature. There are some who debate about this verse, but here in verse 41, it's probably that refers to the body, the human body, the weakness of the body. In other words, the human body's weakness often leads us to fail in what we intend to do for the Lord. Jesus knew this. He knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty and tired. He knew exactly how it feels when you can't seem to keep your eyes open. This is the very reason the author of Hebrews explains to us and exhorts us to come boldly to the throne of grace in the time of need because we have a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Sometimes people think of God as a stern judge without kindness or sympathy. But in Psalm 103, we read that God pities us as a father pities his children. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And Jesus perfectly represents his father. He's filled with pity and compassion for these disciples. But often this verse, when it says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, the spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, it is taken to mean that it is okay to fail. God does not require perfection. In one sense it is true, but we need to understand, by pointing to the weakness of the flesh, Jesus is not excusing his disciples. But he is making a case that because you are weak in your flesh, be watchful and pray. Friends, do you pray to God when you feel weak in your flesh? 
when you know in your heart that you are tempted to give into sin. You should notice that Jesus is patient with his disciples who fail him. How many times have these men failed Jesus, yet he loves them to the very end? Even this night they were arguing that who among them was the greatest? Look at how Jesus patiently responds to these three men, these three leaders who failed him. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. There's some question among commentators that, that Jesus is being ironic or even sarcastic in that he was saying something like, you're sleeping on now and taking your rest at this time and when I'm about to be betrayed. But that, that, that is not how Jesus is approaching here. Jesus indicates that he no longer needs them to watch and pray for him because he has already gained victory through prayer. So he allows them a few more moments of sleep. This is, a beautiful, this is beautiful because he knows they will get no more sleep that night. Jesus here is like a shepherd watching his sleeping flock by night. Shortly after his statement, he sees the torches of soldiers in the distance and he calls for his disciples to meet Judas who has come to identify Jesus for his arrest. He says in verse 46, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In just a few moments, Jesus would be arrested and his disciples would flee into the night. They were unprepared to face this crisis because they slept, because they were not watchful and pray. How would you respond if you had a very good friend, a closest friend, and you are facing a life or death crisis in your life. You reach out to them, something that, you are something that you rarely do, and you ask them to pray for you, to stay up for a little bit at night, to intercede about the situation that was, that was such a burden to your heart. And then you discover that they didn't do that at all. They slept. You might be outraged, certainly profoundly dis disappointed, it could be even the end of your friendship with them. You might say, well, I described who my true friends are. And it's not this person. I'm not going to have anything to do with them anymore. That's not what we see in Jesus' response to these sleepy disciples. What is evidence is that Jesus forgive them for, for their failure. How is that Jesus could forgive these men who have failed him in his hour of crisis? And how could God forgive them for how they have treated his beloved son at this most important of times? The answer is that in less than 12 hours, he would die on the Roman cross for their sins and absorb the just wrath of God against their transgressions. Jesus died on the cross and buried and rose again on the third day for these same sheep who ran away when trials have come. And that is you and me, my friend. As you're sitting here this morning, you might be thinking, I failed the Lord again. I have not done what he has commanded me to do. I have not prayed. And the things that he has forbidden me to do, in some cases I have done. And there are different ways that we can respond to that reality. One common way that Christians respond is by keeping their distance from the Lord and just saying, you know, I cannot do this Christian life thing anymore. 
I think I'm just going to kind of stop going to church or stop trying because I'm sure the Lord is profoundly disappointed with me. And he's probably done with me. And I want you to notice from our text that not, that's not the way he is. He is patient, compassionate, forgiving. Not because it is not a big deal. No, it is our sin that sent him to the cross. But because at that cross, he made the provision for all our repeated failures. We are to call upon to examine our hearts, repent and turn to him again. Let me plead with you, if you are a regular visitor, and if you are not put your faith in Jesus, let me plead with you, consider this man, Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross enduring pain, sorrow and shame, so that sinners like you and me will be saved. If you want to know more about Jesus, please come and talk to me after the service. I would be happy to spend some time with you. So friends, as we conclude, please do not walk away from here thinking you need to pray more, be watchful more, and strive harder. Suppose that is all you have gathered from this morning. In that case, you have missed the point because Jesus is, isn't primarily standing there in the garden as an example for us. We can't walk out here simply thinking we need to try harder to be like Jesus. Faithful in difficult times and submitting, submissive to our Heavenly Father's will. Those are good things, very good things. But that's not what this passage is trying to teach us. The point of this event is not for you and me to look on and see Jesus' bravery and forgiveness and trust and sacrifice and be inspired to do something. The point is for us to realize that we are not like this. We aren't brave in the face of suffering. We don't trust God the way we should. We don't forgive others the way that we are supposed to. Jesus sta doesn't stand there in the garden primarily as our example, but he stands there as a substitute. Jesus has done what we could and what we cannot do so that we can receive what we don't deserve. Grace and forgiveness, adoption into his family, the hope of eternity with him. So in terms of application for us as Christians, I wonder if you're looking at Jesus in the garden here, could serve to help us to trust God a little more to see that the love of Jesus and don't get it twisted. Jesus is not here loving us and protecting us from a heavenly father who hates us. Jesus has been sent by his heavenly father to save us. God so loves the world that he sent his son, Jesus, into the garden, saying, Father, if this is your will, and the response that he receives, it seems, yes, it is my will, that you should suffer so that they can be saved. So friends, when life is difficult or confusing or uncertain or painful, or even when you're struggling with your own sin. I know that it can be really hard to trust in God. When our health or the health of someone we love seems to fail. People we care about are making bad choices. Anxiety and fear about the future begin to choke our affections and our desires to our Lord. When depression starts to cast a dark shadow in our lives. When our plans seem like not going anywhere. 
when our progress has given way to regression. When it seems like there's no obvious way to get out of the thing that we are in those moments. And in those moments, it can be hard to trust the Lord. It is hard to believe that He intends good for us and He has not abandoned us. It could be hard to imagine that we will ever get to a place which, where it's described in Revelations 21 and 22, where there are no more tears in the remembrance of the former things that have passed and no more hurt. We need to learn to look through and look past the circumstances of our days and see Jesus in the garden under the most extreme circumstances. Tasting the cup of God's wrath for us. It was a challenging time for him. It was a horrifying time for him. It has knocked him to the ground. But that doesn't shake his love for us. The wrath of God did not make Jesus contemplate betraying you, though you and I and all the disciples have betrayed him. He was alone in the garden with no comfort, so he can now comfort us as our great high priest who intercedes for our behalf. What do you imagine is going to happen? What could change what, what could change that would make Jesus stop loving you if the love of God or the wrath of God did not make him stop loving you? Think for that for a moment. If the wrath of God did not stop Jesus from loving us, is there anything else that can love stop him from loving us? Jesus suffered in his flesh and soul and he submitted to the wrath that you and I deserve. So let us trust in him, depend on him. And walk in obedience. Let us be watchful. Watchful over one another. Watchful over our own lives. Seeking to please him. In every, every manner. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father. We give you glory this morning. For your great holiness. We praise you that you see all evil and injustice and you are committed to stamping it out. We praise you, Father, that you are also far more loving than we, than we would dare to hope. You sent your son to drink that cup, cup reserved for us so that we will now, not be, now be called your children. We rejoice in your incredible love for us, Lord. Love that could not be shaken even by the taste of hell. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Jesus, we adore you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to love as we are in the light of these things. And help us, Father, to keep watch over our lives and pray and walk in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.